Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. You may be seated. So I figured out that I have been a Christian for 36 years. And I remember when I first came to um, find that ultimate joy that's found only in Christ. I was 15 years old. Came to believe that Jesus, as Paul says, loved me and gave himself for me. And at that time, I thought that to be a Christian meant once you are saved, your life is changed forever. And everything about you is changed. I thought I would be a new person, completely new. But following those years, if you were to ask me what my life as a Christian was like, it wasn't this consistent, progressive road of faith. It seemed, at least, that it had so much turmoil, even rebellion, sin, darkness, that later on, even another 10, 15, 20 years later, I often would think to myself, you know, maybe I really wasn't saved at 15 years old. Maybe it was actually later. And I started changing the goalposts, you might say, and trying to figure out exactly, exactly when was I saved? It really was this struggle. And perhaps some of you are asking that question yourself because you, at least in your mind, you think, okay, I remember turning my life to Christ and trusting in him. And then it just didn't seem to equate with what life was like and things. There's been ups and downs. <coughs> but I want to say this now, 36 years later, looking back and really being able to say with confidence that I was transformed. I was made anew. And I do believe that I did turn to Christ See, in the past, I looked at my life and determined that faith was what I did or what I failed to do in making God happy with me. To be pleasing to God was about everything I did. Far too often, when I look back, I only saw what I didn't do well and how I wasn't pleasing to him. And so therefore, in those moments, there's this doubt. Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Even my successes were, in a sense, so-called failures because in my heart, I arrogantly believe that it was my successes. And it's, as I was sharing last week, we're, we're so quick to boast about our filthy rags. But here I am, and I do think that I can say that I was transformed. That, as Luther said, simul justice et peccator. You can be justified simultaneously while still being a sinner. That is to say that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and I placed my trust in him, I am justified, declared righteous, no longer a slave to sin. And that's the glorious message that we've been hearing throughout Galatians, but really 
punctuated here with a huge exclamation point in Galatians 2.20, really one of my favorite verses of all time. And these precious words are the power of the Christian life. So I'd like to look at what it means for Christ to live in me through three verbs that we get here in verse 20. First, we died. Second, we live. And then third, we believe. We really can't miss the power of of verse 20. Sam, actually, when he was leading worship, he described what theologians call union with Christ. And that phrase is basically an expression of this prepositional phrase that's used throughout all of the New Testament, and especially in Paul's letters, this concept of in Christ. It's used so often that we can't simply pass that by, even though it's only two words. But those two words are so significant to us as believers of Christ. That is to say, when Paul says Christ lives in me, or we are in union with Christ, we are in Christ, that is the power of the Christian life. So let's look at these three verbs, you might say. First, we died. We see that before in verse 19, we talked about it earlier, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul had decided that he would no longer allow the law to be the means by which he would live. He had come to realize that living by his own righteousness, it didn't change anything, not really. But then he says these shocking words in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. See, crucifixion for the Roman and the Jew in Paul's day was shocking in itself. So we've already many times talked about the idea of how shocking and how absurd crucifixion is that Jesus died on a cross. It's the most torturous way to die, or one of at least. So every Christian knows Jesus died on a cross. But how many of us would say, I have been crucified with Christ? To be a Christian means that we have been crucified. What does he mean by that? We believe that when we are crucified with Christ, the person who lived before Christ, us, now that we are in faith, that person is dead. It's been crucified at the cross. What does that entail? It means that your sins, your shame, your guilt, your identity as a person, your reputation, And so much more, all of that is gone. It's died. It's been crucified. The tense of this verb is so important as well. You know, there's a lot of grammar here. But the tense is present perfect. And what's significant about the present perfect tense is it has a past tense with ongoing effect. Always remember that because that's actually really significant in the New Testament. Meaning that when it says, when Paul says, I have been crucified, means that there's been a historical past. When Jesus died on the cross, you died on that cross. 
Everything about you died. It's a historical fact in a moment in time. But because it's present perfect, it means that there's a ongoing effect of that historical past. The past event, Jesus died on the cross, you died on the cross when you believed in him. But the nailing of that cross impacts you today, right now. It must. That's what a Christian is. They died on the cross and they're dying on the cross. That's a really incredible, powerful word if you think about it. Because if it is true that we really have been crucified with Christ, then we are united with Christ. Meaning, not only have we died with him, we get the benefits of his death. Every benefit of his death. Paul goes on to explain that if you have been crucified with Christ, you no longer live. And you might think, but I like who I am. You know, I'm not that bad. Or, and this is something that so many of us struggle with. I don't want to change. I like it just the way that I am. Or I am good enough. Or if you don't accept me, that's your problem. You might think this way, but I'm sorry to tell you, if you really believe that, you are shortchanging yourself. If you really think you've arrived, you're just good enough, you are settling for filthy rags. You don't understand the incredible joy that you are leaving behind because of your pride that places its hope into some sort of idealistic picture of yourself that will never come to the fruition that you hope for. I remember when Sue and I were dating, and I, I think I've said this story before, but to me it's just such a startling, just a good reminder for me. It, um, you know, I was uh, in seminary, I was uh, in not just seminary, throughout my life, I was very much a goofball and uh, doing a lot of practical jokes on people, trying to like get people to laugh. It was my defense mechanism for my insecurities. And so... Um, I remember one day she just came up to me and said, do you think you really need to use your humor that way? Something along those lines. It, like, why do you do that? Why, why do you always have to turn everything into a joke? And I was so deeply offended. I just thought to myself, this is who I am. God made me this way. This is why I'm so special because <laughs> of my sense of humor, as bad as it was. You know, but those, that question really haunted me in its own way. And upon further examination of my heart, I began to realize that what she was saying was right. That there was an insecurity and a fear in me of being known because behind that humor, or lack thereof, whatever you want to call it, was really fear and a, a sense of wanting to be liked, actually. And the more people laughed at my jokes or whatever I did, the more I felt liked, which made me feel good about myself. And that was, that was a smokescreen to something deeper in my heart of saying, I'm afraid of not being liked, of not being loved. That was keeping me from growing. And only when someone called that out did I come to realize that I wasn't understanding who I am. And it was stopping me from experiencing further joy. I think so many of us, including me, 
have a hard time of listening to people who actually love us and care for us, who speak into our life and say, you know, I don't know if you necessarily have to be like that. You don't have to always be angry or irritable. You don't always have to tell jokes or whatever it might be that makes you you. And you think, oh, I, come on, you got to accept me as I am. I'm pretty good. You know, that has to die. If someone loves you enough to say, I noticed this about you, there's a, a mean spirit about you, or you get easily irritated, don't take that so personally. Rather, actually maybe take it personally. Realize that you're not dying, not really. There has to be a death to yourself that lives to, this self lives to fulfill the law's demands. I am righteous. I am good enough. Who I am is makes, makes me me, and I don't need anyone or any person, not even God, to say how I need to change. A dying to my reputation, my identity, my rights, my cause, my worldview, my privileges, my sense of justice, my prosperity, my health, and so much more. If we're not willing to die to those things, we cannot live. In Jesus, we have died and we are dying. In Philippians 2.10, Paul says he wants to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's sort of the same idea in Galatians 2.20. We have to share in his sufferings. We have to die to actually resurrect, to live. Paul Miller, in his book, J-Curve, tells a story about the time he and his wife took their daughter with special needs to uh, Johnny Erickson Tata's camp that they have for special needs kids. It's a ministry for all these families with children of special needs. And it really is a blessed time for so many. And the volunteers who volunteer there are sort of like missionaries. So many of them raise funds, a lot of college students and young adults who go there, raise funds like missionaries and go and just serve all the families at this camp. Uh, one girl whom they met who was serving there, her name was Kayla. And she had come to give of herself, raising funds, doing all the work just so she could serve there. On one of these days, Kayla was in the food line and she heard another mom saying that she heard her, Kayla, belittling her parenting. So the mother had complained to the camp directors about Kayla. And after questioning Kayla, the camp directors came to this conclusion that they didn't have any evidence of that. So they didn't know what was happening. They couldn't do anything. Since there was no proof of anything, it just sort of hung over Kayla throughout this whole camp for the rest of her time there. And you can imagine for her, it would have been an incredibly difficult time. Eventually, the camp staff had come to hear about these things. And on one morning, Kayla came to Paul and his wife, Jill, distraught. They didn't think the charges were true about her, but there was no way to prove that she was actually innocent. And so Paul Miller told her this. You were giving your time and money and receiving back thanks and joy of knowing you and helping others. But now instead of honor, you're getting dishonor. Instead of thanks, you're getting misunderstandings. You are entering the sufferings of Christ. Now you are beginning to love and 
get to know Jesus in new and deeper ways. Now, if you catch that, I think you'll understand this idea of dying and resurrecting, dying and living. Because like Kayla, you give of yourself, your time, your effort, your sacrifices. And some of you, I'm sure all of you have experienced this at some point in your life, and it's not appreciated. In fact, maybe something terrible happens where you're accused of something wrong. There's a sense of injustice. And there's a a fork in the road at that point. On the one hand, you're going to say, forget this. I worked so hard. I've given everything. I've sacrificed my summer. I've raised all this money and I've served. And now I'm being unjustly accused of something. I'm never doing this again. What happens in that part of the road is a heart of bitterness. We, our heart grows hard. And we say, God, you're unjust and everyone else is unjust. And that road is that as we go on in life, become more angered, more easily irritable, less forgiving, less gracious. We, and most of all, we don't see Christ. The other road is, as uh, Paul Miller says, now you're beginning to love and to get to know Jesus in a new and deeper way. You're beginning to understand the lamb who went to that slaughter silent. You're beginning to understand that in this world, we will have trouble, but we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. Too many of us are trying to be like Jesus without wanting to be crucified with Christ. We want all the benefits of being like Jesus without ever dying. And because we want to do what he did, but one thing we don't want is we don't want to die like he did. Lord, I want to know you, but I don't want to die, which is how I can know you. But that's just it. Until you die and share in his sufferings and become like him even unto death, you have no part with him. You can't enjoy the infinite blessings that come at the cross until you die. That is to say, until you die, you cannot live. The next verb, we live. We aren't just crucified with Christ. We live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Thankfully, death is not the end goal of the Christian life. Life is. But the life we live apart from Christ is ultimately death. Life without Christ is death. We need resurrection, and that only comes by dying with Christ. We need renewal. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Death reigned. Paul makes this clear in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, But this is exactly why Jesus was not only crucified, but he was resurrected. The end that we worship, it's not just about Good Friday. It's Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Thankfully, the the Holy Week doesn't end on Friday. It ends on Sunday. And that's for us throughout our whole lives. Romans 6, 5, Paul proclaims, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
Do you see that's just another way of describing Galatians 2.20? It's a more fuller explanation of Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This theme of resurrection after death is throughout the whole Bible. It starts in the garden where Adam and Eve should have been put to death because of their rebellion. But they're not. God clothes them with animal skins and he resurrects them. He raises them from the dead. We see this in Noah where the whole world is destroyed. It should have all been destroyed, but Noah is resurrected from the dead and his family. We see this when Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal and he goes before God. He runs away from Jezebel and he's an Ahab and he's running and he finally gets to uh, this place and he just says, God, I'm ready to die. There's no one left. And God says, no, 7,000 have not yet bowed down to the prophet, uh, to Baal. In the midst of death, there's Elijah is resurrected. He's raised up to life. When Israel is judged and exiled, the temple, Jerusalem is all in ruins. And you read Jeremiah, Lamentations, Isaiah, you see darkness and suddenly God says, I'm going to bring you back, a remnant, a new people. There's a darkness over 400 years of silence after Malachi to Matthew. 400, about 400, 500 years of silence, nothing. It just seems all bleak. Everything's lost and over. But in the midst of the darkness, a baby is born in Bethlehem. Resurrection even in Bethlehem. We often don't think of the resurrection in a manger. But that's exactly what happened because when it was all lost, God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. One day, there will be no, I've, I've spoken many times about it because Isaiah speaks of it, beauty from ashes. One day, there will only be beauty and no ashes. Ashes is only for this time, but one day, ashes are gone forever. Only beauty. Resurrection is what God is all about. He raises his people from the dead. We see this in the lives of saints, even today. For those of us who are doing sonship right now, Rosemary Miller tells a story um, of a great illustration of death to life. Mike Graham, in his uh, biography of Jack Miller's life, describes her life this way, her early years, Rosemary's orderly childhood crumbled. At 13 years old, she prevented her mother from committing suicide. So if you can imagine this 13-year-old trying to stop her mother from killing herself. By the time she was 16, her mother had completely withdrawn affection from her husband, who in turn avoided uh, family conflict by plunging into his work at an auto garage. Lawrence, who is uh, Rosemary's father, flight from his wife's worsening condition multiplied the burden that his elder daughter carried. She assumed the role of caregiver for the Carlson household and looked after her mother and Barbara while, that's her sister, while working with her father to try to keep her mother from taking her own life. So that was her early years. Could you imagine? Your whole life is about trying to get your mother to not kill herself and the father's completely disengaged and you're keeping the family together. 
if you actually get a chance to listen to her testimony, she's sharing it, and she's right now she's in her 90s, but she, she was probably in her 70s. And you just hear this brokenness, but yet her complete trust in Christ. Uh, it's it's a it's just a great reminder for us of as an older saint in Christ. When you see the utter brokenness of how someone has come from, this orphanness. But only when you really die in Christ can you break free of such utter darkness. And you hear joy and freedom in that context. Remember, perfect present tense. You die, you're always dying. But it's not the end. There's an effect. The effect is Christ is living in you. And if you're trying to be a Christian by being strong in your own personality, your own past experiences, your own intellect, and your own strategies, and everything just seems so well put together, you never show weaknesses. You're always the model parent, model spouse, and model coworker, model church member. Everyone only sees what is good about you. They never hear the struggles. And they never hear the dying, but the rising. It's not just about dying either. It's not just, oh, woe is me. My life is terrible. I'm so weak. It's, I died, but Christ lives in me. I no longer live. And to no longer live is not just about succumbing to self-pity. It's dying to that completely. It's to say that that is not who you are. You definitely won't make a difference in the world until you die. And notice that no one will be impacted by you because you are still living. What changes a person is not you. What changes a person is Jesus. Christ in you transforms lives, not you. And so until Christ is in you, living through you, until you are experiencing the very power of the gospel in you, it's no wonder that we make very little difference in the world that we live in. Finally, the third verb is we believe. There is a response to this death and resurrection. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice we still live in the flesh. I live in the flesh. We don't run away from this world. We don't try to form a commune and go to a mountaintop somewhere and say, we're going to just stay away from everybody who's evil. No, the life I live in this flesh, I, I decide I'm going to fight. I'm going to battle. I'm going to engage. I'm going to be a witness. And... He showed me how to live by loving me. He gave himself for me. He loves me and he gives himself for me. Those words are so powerful to the, faith, to the, the life of faith, to the resurrection power. It's always remembering that if God loved you that much, then that's startling. You know, recently um, there was a, you know, the, we, we receive pictures back from Mars. And if you had an opportunity to take a look through NASA and you see all the different, you know, craters and 
red dirt. We just can be so amazed by that, but Jesus created the furthest star in the universe. He knows every molecule that rests on every planet and every moon and every star. If we don't have a wonder about that, and if we're not stunned and amazed by his grace and his power, then it is difficult to live by faith in the flesh. When we are amazed by God, we have faith. And this faith is what drives people to go, to live, where we're not caught just so consumed by fear. When I received reports back from George and Goma, one of the things he had shared is that he and Eric got to, they were trying to get to one of the communities that hand supports. They were stopped by a bunch of soldiers and these soldiers said, you're not allowed to go past this area. And they said, why? Because in order to get to their children to see how they're all doing, it's about 170 kids that they're, that they're supporting, that hands is supporting. Um, they said, no, you can't go because this past week, 30 NGO workers were kidnapped and the Italian ambassador was murdered, assassinated in that area that they were planning on going to. And he wrote, he said in his report, that's why we felt, well, we, he said, that's why we need to be there. Like the fact that that happened shows we need to be there all the more. And so, you know, he went and uh, he convinced them to let him go. He and Eric and his driver was quaking. <laughs> if you can imagine, because his driver is not part of them, but he and Eric were just so convinced God wanted them to go there. And these reports are all what God is showing, what he's doing, why they really needed to be there because no one had been there for the whole year and a half because of COVID. When I hear that, I just think, what are we so afraid of here? I, I was driving, when I was, I was listening to this while I'm driving around, I'm driving around in San Ramon and I'm looking at our nice homes and everything is, we're so deathly afraid of a virus. If it takes my life, if it makes me uncomfortable, I know this might be somewhat hard to hear. And I know I'm, I always get pushback whenever I say these type of things, but when I hear George going into, hey, this Italian ambassador was murdered, 30 people were kidnapped. We really want to go there all the more. I think, do I really believe this gospel or not? Am I really dying so that I can live? Or am I just trying to protect this life of mine? Do I believe in eternal glory and heaven with him? Or is that just a mirage? And I should just really be honest with myself. I tell you, in this moment, if the desire for yourself for us, for me, is to be self-pleasing and reputation-exalting, then we're fools. And you know this, that if we really care about our own, own, ultimately our own safety and comfort, if we really understand that, then we will be eternally minded because one day we will stand before the judge. And there will be no protection. There'll be no spiritual vaccine against the oncoming, as Hebrew says, he is a consuming fire. You do not want to stand before him, facing him 
without the blood of Christ covering you. And what we need is faith. Faith that God loves me. He gave himself for me. Then how can I ever think that God would not protect me? Protection, though, does not necessarily mean that I'm going to live this life comfortably or without fear or even without death. But it means that I trust him no matter what. The same faith, that faith of the God who loved me and gave himself for me is what we need every morning when we work, wake up, when we worship the Lord, our Lord God in prayer, in his word. That's what keeps me going. See, too many people think, well, if I believe in the gospel and grace, then I don't have to do anything. So is that what you're saying? You don't understand the gospel if that's what you think. The gospel is the more you believe it, the more you say, I want to share Christ. I want to place myself into places of danger. I want to risk my life. I want to do, be uncomfortable. I want to be, consider that all that I have is rubbish. It is what empowers us and fuels us to worship, to live for his word, to delight in it. If it's about looking good, if I, if I just care more about having my quiet time so that my, my family looks at me and says, oh, I see you're a godly man. Or if, I'm, if I uh, happen to be in my office and I have my Bible in front of me or I don't, and some of you are walking by, open up my Bible so that you can look at me and say, oh, Sam's reading the Bible. He really is a good pastor. If that's the case, what a fool. The same faith of the faith that God loved me, Christ gave himself for me, is what fuels my desire to read his word. It has nothing to do with who's watching, what I look like. It also fuels how I am at work, how I speak, whether I take part in office gossip. It impacts the way that I do my tax returns, um, how I spend my money. All of that is fueled by this desire to say, God, you, gave, you love me and gave yourself for me. So by faith, I'm going to die knowing that ultimately you will resurrect me. You will give me new life. And that life is what I want most of all. Let me close with this. This past week, I was uh, going through s some old papers of mine, actually, and um uh, what I found was um, some sermons that I preached in 1994 and 95. My first instinct was I wanted to burn them all. But then I thought, just out of curiosity, I'd like to read them. And I found I had some, first of all, the titles were terrible, <laughs> really bad. And then I opened it up and I realized that a few things about them. First, it just made, some of them made no sense. Secondly is that I remember, I'm, I'm preaching these at 23 years old as a single guy, um, just first-year seminary. I don't think life experiences everything to preaching, but there's value to it. But what you need most is an understanding of God's Word, and I would say definitely that was not as, not as much as, let's say, after 30-somewhat years now of life, more that I can actually say, well, at least there's a better base of knowledge. But what I needed most was the gospel. And I realized that so much of what I had written in those sermons was about try harder. Let's discipline ourselves. 
And that just is not enough. The law cannot change us. It can point us to what's wrong with us, but it can never transform us to love Christ, to delight in Him. What I was missing was, we need Jesus. We need to love Him. We need to understand that He gave His life. And I couldn't truly, I I understood it when I was saved, but you have this real distortion of once you're saved, you just sort of leave that behind and you just move on to continuing with the law. Obey, do this, do that. No, what I needed was to go back. I love him. He gave himself for me. And if I understand that, I will live my life for him. I will be freed of fears. It is, it is a wonderful thing to know that I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I hope that is your heart's cry. It will cause you to go. It will cause you to live differently and to think differently and to not be so afraid in this world filled with fears. May we as believers of Christ go forth boldly and live. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge how easy it is to forget the cross of Christ. But it's not just by God's, your grace, it's not just that Jesus died, it's that we died. All of our sins, all of our shame, all of our strivings, all of our rebellion, all of our guilt, gone forever, nailed to that cross. But now we live when we are resurrected in Him. If we share in your sufferings, Lord, we can know with assurance we are raised. May that now spur us on to loving good deeds. May that cause us to take steps of faith. May that push us even to a point of death. May fear never overtake us, but may we live by faith. May we even be hard-pressed to go into places where there is danger toils and snares because you have loved us like that and you promise us even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death we don't need to fear evil because you are with us oh how good you are to us O Lord you love us in life and death and you raise us we trust you in Jesus name we pray